Right, well, I need to begin by saying that um, you could all be Africans. You're kind of light-skinned for Africans, but you could all be Africans because we're running about 45 minutes late. And you can't blame anybody for that except, well, yourselves, because many of you came somewhat late as well. So you just honorary Africans, all of you. I feel very much at home. I'd appreciate your prayers over this weekend. Um, Nobody knows my own weaknesses and wickedness as much as I do. And that always um, troubles me when it comes to times like this. So quite sincerely, I'd appreciate you praying for me and asking that the Lord will help us to study his word together. Uh, I, amongst some of the things that I do, I, I teach, I help a group of pastors teach preaching. And um, when we teach preaching, there's two things that we suggest to young preachers, especially they shouldn't do at the beginning of a sermon. One of them is tell a joke, and the second one is to make an apology. Now, I intended to do two things at the beginning of my message today. The one was, and the second was, but I'll save the joke for tomorrow, but I will give the apology now. And the apology relates to the, um, the notebook. And I don't know if you, I really hope you don't feel like I'm sort of treating you like children, all right? <laughs> my daughter is a, an exceptionally good teacher. She's 27, and I run these sorts of things by her and say, is this good educational stuff? And she says, well, not really. You know, you shouldn't have those fill-in-the-blanks, especially not for... So, you know, please, if you feel offended that I've got fill-in-the-blanks here, you know, I'm, I'm clumsy at those sorts of things. But I hope this is going to be helpful because um, we're really going to be traveling quickly. I mean, even the reading was two chapters. It's going to be an average of two, cha- two chapters per session. And I intend to try and cover every verse, some of them shorter than others, but we're going to try and move through the whole of the book of Amos. Now, as we begin, I'd like to tell you about a holiday that we intend to have uh, with some friends in about, about four weeks' time. We're going to a place on the banks of the Zambezi where there is nothing, what's nothing whatsoever. The toilet is a hole in the ground which is going to be um, surrounded by enough stuff to make it private. We'll devise our own little shower of some sort. And other than that, there's going to be nothing there. The planning for that type of holiday takes an awful lot of, 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 it takes a lot of planning for a holiday like that. It's a long journey, and it's a journey over terrible dirt roads. You have to have rugged vehicles, generally four by fours. We're taking a couple of camping trailers along because you have to take absolutely everything. There's no refrigeration, there's no electricity, there's no running water other than the Zambezi River, which is running but it's not really particularly good water, all right? So you've got to take your own drinking water. You've got to take, if you want things to stay cold, if you want to take meat, you've got to prepare for it. We're going to be there four nights, five days. The logistics, the planning, the journey, it's hot, it's sweaty, they're bumpy roads. And it's really a difficult thing to organize a trip like that. But sitting on the banks of the Zambezi in the evening, listening to the fish eagles, watching the water quietly going by, seeing the hippos across there, seeing an elephant swim across to the island, hearing in the distance the yapping of jackals or maybe the roaring of a lion. It's worth it. It's really worth it. What's my point? My point is that sometimes the the destinations we go to are, are, are hard to get to, and they are difficult. 
But when we're there, it's worth it. You got that principle? Now, if you were here for Isaiah, I basically said much the same thing as we began Isaiah. I likened Isaiah to a mountain range. And I said that uh, studying some of the passages in Isaiah is like climbing up to big, tall mountain peaks. It's hard work. But when you get there, it's worth it. My conviction is, uh, as New Testament Christians is we're not particularly good about the Old Testament. We don't know it particularly well. We visit some passages. We visit some portions. It's a little bit like the Old Testament is a foreign city. It belongs to the Jews. Sorry, a foreign country. It belongs to the Jews and not us. And if we ever do venture into the Old Testament, we sort of go there as tourists, but we don't really belong. And if we do go there, we visit some places like Genesis or maybe some of the historical books or maybe Proverbs or some of the Psalms, but we don't really feel at home. And there's a little province in the Old Testament, the province of the minor prophets, which hardly any New Testament believers go to. Maybe every now and then we dip into Daniel, or maybe we take a look at Jonah, or maybe we sort of skim across the surface of Joel. But what about Malachi? What about Zephaniah? What about Amos? If I was to ask you about Amos, what could you tell me? Amos is a fairly major, minor prophet. He is important. What do you know about Amos? He's a farmer. Good. What else? He wrote a book in the Bible. What else? Say again. Plumb line, very good. David's birth? No, I heard birth. Oh, Booth. Oh, sorry. I beg your pardon. Even when you spelt it, I couldn't understand. My fault entirely. Sorry. All right. Raising up the booth of David. Right. The booth. Booth of David. All right. Okay. Good. But by and large, I think, I think for most of us, Amos is a little bit unknown. I'd like you to imagine that Amos is a town. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk around the town. You are a tour group. I'm going to be a tour guide. Not the best you could get, but I'm here anyway. Right? We'll make the most of it. We're going to move quickly through this tour. If you happen to doze off, you will lose the tour group. You're going to find that Amos is, by and large, a fairly dark and foreboding town. It's not the most pleasant of towns, but you're going to find, as you walk away, that there's one building, one citadel in this town, which is quite glorious, quite wonderful, and you're going to remember it. And I hope that this journey through Amos is going to be sufficient of a, an introduction that maybe you'll go back and visit more often, and maybe you'll take some friends to visit with you. You notice in the front cover that I've called Amos... The lion who roars and the, lion, the lamb who saves. All right, let's have a very quick overview of Amos. And so if you take your fill-in-the-blanks little notebook, here's a basic outline for you. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, as Ben read that for us, we have the introduction of Amos and the Lord. And then in the next passage, which we're going to cover today, we have eight oracles of judgment. Eight oracles of judgment. An oracle is a statement about the future, it's a statement often of judgment, sometimes of good things, but it's a, um, a statement about the future, there are eight oracles of judgment. Following that, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 14, there are three sermons of rebuke, three sermons of rebuke, and then finally, 
so no, penultimately, sorry, five visions of judgment, five visions of judgment, and then the book closes with a wonderful oracle of salvation. And I would encourage you just to try and get that simple outline, 8351, 8351, 231 gets through the door, 8351 gets through Amos, all right? So 8351, eight oracles of judgment, three sermons of rebuke, five visions of judgment, and one oracle of salvation. Now I'm going to travel very quickly through this opening section, but I'd like us just to get some general comments about the book before we look in more detail at the book, in particular the first section. The first thing we notice is that the book of, of the weight of the book of, of Amos is on judgment and warning. You know, it's, I, I called it a dark and foreboding town. It's judgment and it's warning. There's an overwhelming sense, listen carefully, of the fact that God takes sin very seriously indeed. You cannot walk away from Amos and have any other conclusion than that God takes sin very seriously indeed. And by the way, those blank long lines are for you to write any notes that you might want to add as well, right? So you don't, you don't have to return these and you don't have to leave those blank. You didn't need me to tell you that, did you? <laughs> Secondly, notice that judgment and warning is not only against the obvious evil and wicked people, but also includes the people of God. So this judgment and warning, which predominates through the book of Amos, is not just the heathens, it's not just the bad people. But in actual fact, it includes the people of God. We will look in detail in a few moments, but this opening chapter 1 and half of chapter 2, what Amos does is he mentions the heathen nations around Israel. They're obviously idolatrous, wicked, fierce, heathen, ungodly. But from chapter 2 verse 4 until the end of chapter 9, attention turns away from those heathen peoples and focuses upon the people of God. So this book of judgment and warning, speaking about the seriousness of sin, focuses primarily on the sins of God's people and judgment against God's people. That's why Matthew chapter 7 was such an appropriate scripture to read at the beginning, where we have the tendency of looking at others, even Ben's opening prayer. We have the tendency of looking at others and seeing their sin. But what Amos does is he turns it around and he says, but look at yourselves. And in actual fact, the majority of the book, chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end, looking at the sin of Israel. Third principle is this. The principle of judgment against God's people is based upon their special privileges. Their special privileges. The principle of judgment against God's people is based upon their special privileges. I'm sure you've heard the expression, you know it, with privilege comes responsibility. And that's certainly true in the Old Testament. It's certainly true in the New Testament. What's interesting in Amos is this. It's not just Though they were privileged, God took sin seriously, but because they were privileged, God took sin seriously. You see the difference there? It's not just though they were privileged, God took sin seriously, but because they were privileged, God took sin seriously. They were the privileged ones, they were the blessed ones, and because of that, God took their sin more seriously. Principle number four. The great sins of God's people that Amos deals with, there's two of them, and we'll elaborate over and over again from the book. Number one, hypocritical worship, and number two, social injustice. Number one, hypocritical worship, and secondly, social injustice. The people were coming to worship God, but their hearts were not right, very similar to Isaiah. But secondly, they were coming to worship God, and they were neglecting the poor. So hypocritical worship and social injustice, that will flow through 
the book of Amos. Principle number five, though the book is primarily about judgment, it finishes on blessing. And I'd hope to sort of paint a much better word picture at the beginning about Amos being like a town with a wonderful bright citadel, a beautiful citadel that we see rising up in all of this dark foreboding surroundings. And that citadel is at the end of chapter 9, it's the last half of chapter 9, and is the wonderful promise of blessing. Though the book is about sin and judgment, it concludes with a wonderful promise of blessing and triumph. And then the final principle, I've written it out there for you, judgment and blessing are only ever united in Christ and his work on the cross. Ultimately, the book of Amos is going to point us to and lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions? Do you have this expression here? Are we together? Please do ask questions if you'd like. Um, I really do believe that preaching and teaching is, is, is essentially dialogue, not monologue. Now, I'm happy to do most of the talking, okay? I'd appreciate it if you let me do that. But I really would like to establish a relationship, a communication relationship with you. And I'd like to have a sense that we're together. And I'll be happy to entertain questions. Please keep them short and keep them really simple. Thank you at the back. Yes, in that Amos would be holding the people, or God is holding the people ultimately responsible for all of the law, Genesis all the way through to Deuteronomy. And therefore, that's the basis of God's judgment against his people, is that they did not obey the covenant. And within the book of Deuteronomy, within the book of Leviticus, Exodus, there are these clear commands to help the poor and the needy, and the people of Israel were neglecting those at that time. There was another hand here. Was it just a... Okay, let's, let's dive into the actual verses themselves. Right at the beginning there, we have an introduction to the contents of the book. Those are verses 1 and 2. We have the prophet who speaks and the Lord who roars. Amos, we know, very, we, we know a lot of detail about Amos. Some of the other prophets we're not quite so sure about. But we're told about Amos several things. Number one, he is an agricultural person. He is a sheep herder. He comes from Tekoa. Tekoa is a small village southeast of Bethlehem. Now, that's significant. He's going to be writing to the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember your Old Testament history, Judah and um, Israel divided into two, or Israel divided into two after the death of Solomon. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And even though Amos comes from the south, from Judah, he is prophesying to the nation in the north. So he's prophesying to Israel. And he comes from this little town, uh, Tekoa, southeast of Bethlehem. Quick comment here. You know, we might think because Amos is identified as a sheep herder that he's a dummy. He's certainly not. You know, you read through the book of Amos, it's very cleverly written. He knows a lot about the law. He knows a lot about arguing and rhetoric. He knows how to use various sort of stylistic devices like irony and sarcasm and so on. So Amos is obviously a very clever man, but he is a, he's a farmer. He's a sheep herder. Chapter 7, verse 14, if you'd like to, to, to note that down, he says, I'm, a, I'm a, a herder of the flocks and the grower of sycamore trees. Chapter 7, verse 14. So he's agricultural. And as we go through Amos, you'll notice that there are these agricultural pictures that are used over and over again. He's writing to Israel. It's a prophecy specifically, though not exclusively, addressed to the northern kingdom. 
Now, not exclusively, because as we're going to see in a moment, chapter 1 is about the other heathen kingdoms. Chapter 2 begins with Judah. But from midway through, early on in chapter 2 all the way to the end, he focuses God's message to Israel, the northern kingdom. When does he write? Verse 1 tells us that he writes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So very precisely placed in time and history, he writes during this period, probably round about 760 B.C., about 760 B.C. Uh, he is probably a contemporary, he would have been contemporaneous with Isaiah's early ministry, Isaiah prophesying in the south, Amos prophesying in the north. Now, what is happening to these two nations at this time? And again, we don't have time to look at the passage, but I've given you the reference there. If you look at 2 Kings 14, chapter 20, verse 23 to chapter 15, verse 7, you find that both Judah and Israel were going through times of remarkable prosperity. God was blessing Israel. Now, we're going to read, we're going to see how wicked Israel was at the time, but God was blessing Israel at this time. In actual fact, they were going through unprecedented times of prosperity. And there's just this remarkable contradiction. You've got Jeroboam, who is said in those, that passage to be a wicked king, who walked in the ways of Jeroboam the first. So he's a wicked king, and yet God is blessing the nation, and he's blessing the nation through Jeroboam. It speaks in that passage about military conquests and extending the boundaries of the kingdom. So Israel is going through a, a very prosperous time of comfort and security, and within that context, Amos comes and prophesies. Now, please get that. Get that picture there. Life looks good. The economy is strong. We've got a strong king on the throne. We're getting, uh, we're getting good harvest. We're expanding our borders. Life looks excellent. And within that context, Amos comes with this message. And notice how Amos speaks about this message Verse 2, when he introduces the Lord. Verse 1 is the prophet who speaks. Verse 2 is the Lord who roars. When God speaks this message, he roars from Zion. So right at the beginning, we've got, we've got a very clear indication there of what type of message is this. Now remember the context. Things are looking good and God has blessed the nation. But despite the fact that God has blessed the nation, when he brings his word to them, it's a word of the roaring of a lion. Remind me what... Amos's job was looking after sheep. If you were a shepherd, what is the one sound that more than any other would set you on edge? The roaring of a lion. See how incredibly rich the word of God is. When, when God wants to communicate, he uses a guy who looks after sheep and he says, here's how I'm speaking to you as my people. I am roaring from Zion. So you've got this picture then of the sheep herder who's looking after the flock and looking out for the flock, and there's a lion roaring in the background. And will you notice in verse 2, what is the effect of God roaring? What is the effect of God's message? He utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Again, you see the, the agricultural theme there. For a shepherd, you don't want a lion roaring. And you don't want the pasture lands drying up. And God says, when I speak, this is what's going to happen. A couple of principles we draw out from this opening uh, section here. Let me just give you the, the main points very, very quickly. Notice, first of all, that God is a God who rules and acts in history. 
God is a God who rules and acts in history. Amos teaches us what the whole of the word of God teaches us. God rules all the nations and he acts in the history of the world. We can take confidence that God enters and continues to enter into this world of time and space. God is the God of history. History is just that. It is his story. It is the script that he has written out. God enters into time and space. He enters into history. Secondly, God is the God who speaks to men or to mankind, humankind. God is the God who speaks to humankind. And I've made a point there that I hope you grasp the significance of. The silence of a lion is worse than the roaring of a lion. Okay? Why? Yeah, when a lion is about to pounce, it doesn't roar. So when it's roaring, at least you can take some action. But when he stops roaring, you're in trouble. That's, that's one of the messages of Amos, is that, praise God, he's a God who speaks. Even if when he speaks, he does what? He roars. Praise God, he's roaring. Because when he's silent, <laughs> you're in trouble. Chapter 8, verse 11, we'll get there eventually. It talks about a time when there's a famine of God's word, when God stops speaking. That's a terrible time. God is a God who speaks to humankind Thirdly, God is a God who must on occasion be feared. God is a God who must on occasion be feared. The Lord roars from lions, from Zion. This isn't God coming along and saying, listen, can we have a chat together? Sit down and have a cup of tea. I've got a few things to talk about. God is a God who roars. You ought to sometimes be afraid of God when he speaks. And then finally, uh, finally, yes, God is a God who communicates his message through real people. He's used real people to communicate his message. Again, just to sort of tweak your appetites, I hope, um, you're going to find the, the character and the life of Amos just flowing through this book. God uses real people to speak his message. All right, let's very quickly, very, very quickly. We're going to gallop. Please uh, stay with me as we gallop. The eight oracles of judgment. As God rules and roars from Zion, verses 3 to 16 of chapter 2, we've got these eight oracles of judgment. Now, there are, there are eight of them. The first seven follow a similar pattern. The last one is slightly different. So the similar pattern is this. There's an opening formula. We won't look at each one in detail. Thus says the Lord. So seven times over, in fact, eight times over, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. There's this opening formula. God is the one who's speaking, not Amos. Secondly, each of those oracles of judgment has the phrase, for three transgressions or for four. For three transgressions or for four. Those of you who know the book of Proverbs, you know that sometimes that same for three, for four. The idea there is, is it's a Hebrew term which connotes completeness, um, everything is included. So God is saying, you know, it's not just that you've got three transgressions or four. He's saying, you know, you're just totally wicked. So this expression for three transgressions or for four, comprehensiveness of their sinfulness. Thirdly, it's got the statement, I will not revoke its punishment. If you've got the NIV, I will not turn back my wrath. This is irrevocable. God will not call back his judgment. And then fourthly, you've got laid out the charges against the nations in question. The charges against the nations. Did any of you pick up any of the charges? 
that seemed particularly horrific. Yeah, ripping open the babies, the, ripping open the wombs of pregnant women and pulling out the babies, threshing a nation, um, refusing to help your brother. You know, you've got all these specific charges laid out against the people. And then finally, you've got God saying, I will send fire upon. So he will judge those nations, and they're laid out there. What lessons do we learn? I'm going to leave that for now, if you don't mind, just in the interest of time. Flip over the page, if you will. To page 7. I'm lying. Don't flip over to page 7 because that's tomorrow. Page 6. Notice what's happened, what happens then. So you've got these, the first, there's eight, eight oracles of judgment. Uh, they've, they've got these similar. Uh, components. Notice that the first six of them, what Amos does is he, is he starts with Damascus in the north, and then he goes down to Gaza and Tyre on the west, and then he goes across to Edom on the, the sort of southeast, and then he moves up in verse 13 to Ammon, and then he goes up to Moab. What he's done is he's encircled Israel, and he's basically said, God is going to judge those people and 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 those people. What do you think Israel are doing as they listen to Amos' prophecy? They're sharing. This is really great. And in actual fact, in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about Judah. Now, even though they were originally a united nation or a united kingdom, there's no love lost between those two. And so even when it gets to Amos saying, you know, God is also going to hammer Judah, what what does Israel do then? They share even more. And then what does God do? He points a finger and he says, now I'm against you. What what does Israel do there? Well, they're shocked. And we need to catch that that sense of shock. You know, here is God and he's dealing with all of the heathen nations. And Israel is saying, they deserve it, they deserve it, they deserve it. And then God says, now I'm going to talk to you. And I pointed out earlier. That from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of the book, the focus is entirely upon the people of Israel. The sins of Israel were worse than the sins of all of the other people. You might like to just quickly take note that uh, the sin of Judah, verse 4, is that they rejected the law of God. They haven't kept his statutes. They knew what God wanted them to do, and they did not do it. These other nations, they sinned, as it were, in ignorance. Judah sinned knowingly. What about the sins of Israel? And I'm going to deal with these next few verses in a bit more detail here. Notice from verse 6, the sins of Israel. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. What is God holding against the people of Israel? They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. They were treating the poor as nothing more than commodities. They were treading upon the heads of the poor in the dust, beginning of verse 7. They were turning aside the way of the humble. Those who should have had right treatment, who were weak, were not getting right treatment. They were practicing sexual immorality. Third line in verse 7, a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. Verse 8, they were taking advantage of the poor as on garments taken as pledges. They stretch out beside every altar. Now, in the Old Testament, if somebody owed you money, you could take their garment as a pledge that they would repay. 
But at night time, you had to return their garment because they needed that as warmth at night time. You were not allowed to keep a garment overnight as a pledge. What were they doing? They were taking the garments and then they were stretching themselves out. Where were they stretching themselves out? Are the answers here? Beside the altar. So you see, you've got this incredible hypocrisy. There they are acting in this terrible way towards the poor, and then they go and lie down with the very garments that they took from the poor against God's law. They're covering themselves in front of the altar. Remarkable hypocrisy in worship. And in the house of God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. You see what God is doing? He's saying to his people, listen, you can look at those other nations and you can say those sins are terrible, terrible. And really, if you look at those sins that are listed in chapter chapter 1 of the heathen nations, they are horrible sins. But God takes more seriously the hypocritical worship and the social injustice practiced by his people than he does those terrible sins of the other nations. What the Lord does in verse 9 and down to verse 11 is he says, you know, this is, this is what I've done for you. Why is your sin so terrible? And please, as you listen to this, as you listen to this, listen to it for yourself. Because one of the things we've got to appreciate is the Old Testament may have been written in the Old Testament times, but it's a new word of God for us today. We sang that wonderful song. Um, God spoke in his prophets, God spoke in his son, and God is speaking by spirit. Did I get that right? Is that right? The three verses. You know, God is speaking now. He's speaking to us through his word. You know, you and I might say, there's a lot of wicked people around us, and they really deserve God's judgment. And what God will say to us from the book of Amos is, what about you? How are you living? Look what God says he did for them. Verse 9, I destroyed the Amorites before them. I brought them into the land. Though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, they sent the spies into the promised land. The spies came back and said, man, these guys are giants. There's no ways. And God delivered them. God gave the land of Canaan to his people. Verse 10, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. God says, I've given you all of this. I've blessed you so much. And then God wanted to keep them on track. So what did he do? Verse verse 11, I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? What is God doing? He's saying, you've sinned against me, and look at all the incredible privileges I gave you. I've given you the land of Canaan. I took you out of Egypt. I've given you prophets who tell you my word, and I've given you Nazarites who live out my word. You remember who the Nazarites were? Anybody tell me quickly in about 15 seconds? Right, they were, they were men who took a vow of, of purity, of life of external evidence of purity of life. You could look at a Nazarite and say, that is a person living a holy life. So God says, I've done two things. I've given you prophets, and they say to you, this is how you ought to live. And I've given you Nazarites who have shown you, this is how you ought to live. What more do you want from me? Now notice what Israel did to those incredible privileges from God. Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. Do you see how that ties in? Yes, no? I always find it easier to read heads than minds. So if you wouldn't mind doing something with your heads, it'll help me. All right? 
God's I've done everything for you. I, I gave you Nazarites who would live good, holy lives before you. What did they do with the Nazarites? They, they, they caused them to compromise. So that no longer was there this statement of, this is how you ought to live, being lived out in front of them. And God says, I sent you prophets, and the prophets were there to tell you what my word was. What did they say to the prophets? Don't even think about prophesying. We don't want to hear what God has to say. Remember the picture? The lion roars. What's worse than the roaring of a lion? The silence of a lion. I gave you Nazarites, that was me speaking. I gave you prophets, that was me speaking. Because you're living sinful lives. And I'm going to judge you if you live sinful lives. But what did you do to the Nazarites? You silenced them. What did you do to the prophets? You silenced them. So what's God going to do in response? Verse 13. Behold, I am weighted down beneath you, as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest amongst the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. That's God's terrifying judgment. So what have we had so far? The introduction of Amos the prophet and the God who roars. Eight oracles of judgment. First six against the heathen nations. Israel says, yeah. Number seven against Judah. (laughs) Israel says, yeah. But number eight, most importantly, Israel, what about you? These are the sins you're committing. Number one, hypocritical worship. Number two, social injustice. And Israel, this is really serious because I've done so many things for you. All of these privileges, all of these good things, and I've given you the Nazarites and the prophets. I've spoken to you over and over again, but you've tried to silence them. In the light of that, I'm going to judge you. The lion is roaring. The lion is roaring. And the people ought to be afraid. We'll close there. I'll pick up tomorrow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father for your word which speaks to us, for your Holy Spirit who is real and alive, and for Jesus who is our prophet and our teacher. And as we get into this book, Lord, and work our way through it, walking through this Old Testament town, as it were, not easy, but good. Uh, Difficult, but worthwhile. Hard work, but rich. So help us, we do pray. And help us to realize, Lord, that you have something to say, not just to other people, but you have something to say to us. And we bless you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.